Tomorrow is Thanksgiving Day in Canada, and it's a good question to ask, what is Thanksgiving? What is it? There are two key components to Thanksgiving. First of all, we acknowledge in Thanksgiving, we acknowledge that there are good things in the world. There are gifts and benefits that we have received. And secondly, we acknowledge that the source of this goodness is outside of ourselves. We acknowledge that we've received gifts. We acknowledge that the source of these gifts is outside of ourselves. That's what leads us to thankfulness, gratitude, thanksgiving. And we've got a lot to be thankful about. We receive many gifts and blessings through other people. And ultimately, they all flow from the overflowing fountain of all good, who is God himself. And so true thanksgiving is worship. We celebrate in thanksgiving. We celebrate that God is good and that life with God is good. And as we look at this psalm, we'll be going through verse by verse. If you have your Bible open, it will help you to follow the sermon. Blessed, says the psalmist, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. And we need to, at the beginning of the psalm, just remind ourselves of the context of the psalm. The Psalter, the psalm book, starts with the first psalm, Psalm 1, which lays before us, which sets before us the two ways, the way of blessing, the way of curse, the way of righteousness, the way of wickedness. Blessed is the man, says the psalmist, who walks not in one way, but does walk in the other. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who stands not in the way of sinners and sits not in the seat of scoffers. And we can, we can turn that around. We can say, blessed is the man who walks in God's counsel, who stands in the way of righteousness, and who sits in communion with the worshipers of God. That is the blessed life. And the psalm and the Proverbs and the wisdom literature and the entire scriptures set before us those two ways. That's always the choice that we have before us every step of the way, every day of our life. And then in the more immediate context of our psalm, of course, is the psalm before it. There is a certain method to the order in the Psalter. Probably the order we have was uh, set up after the return from the exile, and there's the Holy Spirit has inspired and, and blessed the, the way in which the Psalms are organized. And so Psalm 128 follows 127, which follows 126. And if you have your Bible open to 126, you'll notice that Psalm 126 is a celebration of the return from exile. And so God's people have learned that bitter lesson that when you walk in the way of the sinner and the counsel of the, the wicked and the scoffer, then that only brings distress and destruction and death. They've learned that lesson through the exile. And here they are back in the promised land, and they can't believe their eyes that they're back in the land where God dwells amongst his people on this earth. And then Psalm 127 speaks to the attitude of those who are rebuilding the land after the exile. 
And Psalm 127 reminds God's people, listen, you're, you're trying to rebuild everything here. Remember why we were exiled in the first place. We forgot God. So when you're doing this great rebuilding project of the promised land, remember that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And so Psalm 127 warns against a life which is empty and useless and vain because it's without God, a life of always striving but never succeeding. And Psalm 127 reminds us that God blesses our labors. And then at the end of 127, God reminds us that the highest blessings are those gifts which will endure forever. You see, houses and cities and businesses and all the infrastructure and all the projects that we love to be involved in for God's glory, in the end, they're going to burn. They're going to be destroyed at the final day. But our children, our children are our greatest reward, our inheritance from the Lord. You know, the Bible speaks about family and loved ones as the greatest blessing, as the greatest wealth. The scripture says better a meal of vegetables where love is than a fattened calf with hatred. And so Psalm 127 reminds us to keep those eternal and enduring things as our greatest heritage, our greatest inheritance from God. And so Psalm 127 reminds us you can't get blessing by, by striving, by the power of your own hand. Psalm 128, which is our text, reminds us that you do get blessing by walking in God's ways and that we experience his gracious gifts normally through the ordinary means of being faithful in our daily task, in our office as a husband, a wife, a mother, a father, a son or a daughter of God. Blessed, or happy, we can translate, is everyone who fears the Lord. And children, isn't that a strange way to talk, to fear the Lord? Does that mean to say that we are scared of the Lord? Because that's what fear makes you think of, right? If I fear something, then I'm scared. So why does the Bible tell us that it's good to fear the Lord? Well, the Bible often tells us not to fear, over and over in the Old Testament and the New Testament, from the very lips of our Savior himself, comes that command, fear not. We don't have to fear anything because God is on our side. And we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus our Lord. We fear nothing because we are children of the living God. And we are safe in the palm of his hand. And nothing can separate us from the love of God towards us in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we fear nothing. And yet at the same time, the Bible tells us, fear the Lord. And what does that mean? Well, to fear the Lord means to walk in his ways. That's right there. Because in the poetry, the Hebrew poetry, the, the phrases in the verses often reinforce one another. And you can understand the one phrase from the other. So blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Well, what does that mean? Well, look at the next phrase. Who walks in his ways? That's what fearing the Lord is. It's to walk in his ways. What does it mean? Well, it means this. It means you love God so deeply. And you are so in awe of his glorious majesty that you tremble at the thought of displeasing him. 
That's what it means to fear the Lord. That you live for an audience of one. That every word, every thought, every action is deliberately chosen and fine-tuned to be acceptable to him, to serve him, and to worship him. That is to live in the fear of the Lord and to walk in his ways. And notice that the blessedness is in fearing the Lord and walking in his ways. You remember Psalm 1 talking about that man, that righteous man who, who spends his time meditating upon the word of God. The word, he's rooted in it and it, it's life-giving. It makes him green and fruitful. And so the Christian life is not just locking yourself into a monastery or a convent and just thinking about God and meditating on the things of God and studying the Word of God or even talking about the Word of God all the time. But the Christian life is living the Word of God. We're rooted in the Word. We meditate upon the Word. We study. We memorize. We love. We talk about the Word. But that translates into action. We walk in His ways. And you might think, well, well, how? How do we walk in God's ways? What kind of great feats must we do for him? Do we need to travel over the continents and the seas to do great, marvelous works for God? Well, well, sometimes, but not usually. The way we walk in the ways of the Lord is simply to be faithful in the place and the time where he has put us in our office. And so we labor in our daily calling. That's how we fear the Lord. That's how we walk in his ways. And when we do that, there's blessing. You shall eat, verse 2, the fruit of the labor of your hands. Now notice... Whose hands? What does the Bible say? The Bible doesn't say you shall eat the fruit of the labor of other people's hands. That's the longing and desire of the human heart outside of Christ, outside of God, that I can live off somebody else. It's, I, can, I can complain that I'm not getting my share because there are people out there with more things than I have, and I want some of that. Why don't I have those things? Why doesn't the government give me things? Why don't I get things that other people have? That's not what the converted in the regenerate heart thinks. The Bible teaches us you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. There was a sickness permeating our society, which has turned its back on God and his word, and that sickness involves a hatred of work. Our society despises faithful labor, the dream of many is if you have to have a job to get a job where you don't have to do anything. You can just sit around, do nothing, and get paid for it. That's the dream of many. Or to win the lottery, even better. Then you don't even have to clock in. I remember many years ago, I spoke to a young man that had just got a job, and he says, Pastor, I'm so happy. I've got a job working for the government, working at a pumping station of the, the water uh, company of the government water agency, and, and I, I'm there in, in the evenings and the nights, and, and I, I take my hammock, and I, I stretch it out, and I sleep all night long, and I'm paid for it, and life is so good. This man was in his 20s, 
He says, you know what, I'm already calculating what age I can retire and how much I'm going to be getting in my retirement. That was his idea of a blessed life. It doesn't align with God's idea of a blessed life. We were created to work. We were created to work. The Bible, look, at, look at verse 2. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. That word well is the Hebrew word for good. That word that we have in Genesis chapter 1, God saw everything he had created, and it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. And so we have the language of paradise here in, in verse 2. When you work hard, and when you enjoy the fruit of your labor, there's blessing in it, there's a goodness, there's a paradisal goodness, because that's what we were made to do. If you quickly look at Genesis chapter 2, and you look at verse 15, you'll see that work is not a consequence of the fall, but work is part of the good creation that God has made. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. See that word there? To work it and keep it. Adam and Eve were not created to sit and lie around in hammocks all day. They were created to work and to develop the world for God's glory. And we have that same beautiful task, even though it's a lot harder in a fallen world. But even in a fallen world, we can still experience the pleasure that God ordained in enjoying the fruits of our labor. It feels good to, to work hard and then to enjoy some of the fruits of that work. And that work and that enjoyment are both acts of worship. We praise God in it. And we enjoy his gifts, not just for ourselves, not just for our family, but we enjoy them by sharing with those around us. There's a command in the scripture, there's a principle in the scripture that when we are allowed to work hard, we're allowed to enjoy the fruits of our labor, God wants us to have an eye for those who aren't able to work hard because they're sick, because they're unemployed, or because of other difficulties and afflictions in their life. And then God wants us to share the fruits of our labor with them. Turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy 14, verse 29 for a moment. Deuteronomy 14, 29. And this is one example that uh, every so often God would tell his people to come together and, and, and take their tithes, and then they were supposed to eat and drink, and even, there was even wine and strong drink. It was a feast. It was like a wedding feast. And then notice what God says in Deuteronomy 14, 29. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, that's the stranger, the one who's visiting from afar and doesn't have resources in your area, the fatherless and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. And so that's something that God's people do. Our feasting is not just for us, not just for our little family. We don't, we don't celebrate blood clots in the body of Christ, that we just stick together to those that we're related to. But we look to see who we can draw in to that rejoicing in God's goodness, 
who is alone, who is far away from family and friends, who in God's providence is sick or unemployed, has no family of their own close by. God ordains to provide for them through the love of brothers and sisters. And if you are unemployed, or if you are unable in other ways to enjoy the fruits of your labor, and you are invited into fellowship and communion and feasting with another family in the church, there's nothing to be ashamed of. That family has received from God these blessings through their work. You receive from God these blessings through their work by God's ordination. And both of you give thanks to God. We need the widows. We need the unemployed. We need those who are too sick to work so that we have an opportunity to show to them the love of Christ. And if you are sick or unemployed or a widow or single, these are gifts of God through you to the church to allow the communion of saints to work for God's glory. And so, however God gives you the blessings, in whatever path it takes, accept it. Don't let your pride get in the way of you being a blessing to God's people. Now, knowing God... And knowing Christ, knowing the Word, the Word incarnate, changes our attitude to work. And I want to quickly look at a few verses in the Scriptures. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 is the first one. When the Lord Jesus comes into our life, things change. We have a different attitude towards everything, including work. 1 Thessalonians 4.11, that's page 987. Aspire, says the Apostle, to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And then just go to the next epistle, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10 to 13. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 13, where the apostle says this. This is on page 990. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not weary, do not grow weary in doing good. And then Ephesians 4.28, if you just go back a few pages, Ephesians 4.28, and that's on page 978. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And there you see that Old Testament principle again. It's not just for me, not just for my family, but it's to bless others as well that God gives me blessing, gives me gifts. And so when we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a totally different attitude to his gifts and to to work and, and the meaning of work in our lives. I'm reminded of the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, who spoke with a a maid. She was an illiterate maid, and she didn't have a lot of education, obviously. And he asked her, you're a new believer. What has changed in your life through you coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ? And that maid said, sir, before I knew the Lord Jesus, I would sweep the dirt under the rug. And now I don't do that anymore. Knowing the Lord Jesus means that you delight in your work, 
and you do it well for Jesus, even when no one else is looking. And so there is faithful work in the blessed life. And there is a sacred rhythm of work and rest and enjoyment. For the Christian, work is worship. It is not an evil necessity. The Christian doesn't believe in TGIF. The Christian doesn't say, thank God it's Friday. The Christian says, thank God it's Sunday. So that in the power of the word, I can go into thank God it's Monday. And I can go out into the world and serve the Lord Jesus through the gifts that he has given me and the talents that he has granted. And so we celebrate, we rejoice in our work, but we are not consumed by our work. Work is not an idol because we also take time to enjoy the fruits of our labor in the context of family. And that brings us to verse 3. Behold, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Now notice the themes here of the blessed life, the life in, in Christ. We're reminded of what we saw when we went through the last chapters of the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians. That the way we fight our battles as Christians is to embrace who God made us to be and what God made us to do in this world, to embrace the creational ordinances of of work and marriage and family and children. That's how we fight our battles. That's how we stand firm in the Lord against what the kingdom of darkness is. You see, the kingdom of darkness fears and despises family and marriage and work, all the things God created us to do and to be. But we embrace and we rejoice in God's creation ordinances. God is good. God is life. And the goodness of God is experienced in the life that he creates and restores and renews. And it simply comes to be manifest in the basic things of human existence. And so your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. The Bible says that the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish woman tears it down with her own hands. And so there's something about the godly woman and her house. Now, does that mean to say that when her husband leaves for work on Monday morning, he's got to lock her in so that she doesn't leave the house? That's where she has to stay? No, not at all. The Bible describes the godly woman in Proverbs chapter 31 as a, an executive of her own flourishing business. She's trading, she's selling, she's buying, she's owning property. She's a businesswoman. She runs a pretty big operation with servants and employees, and she takes care of them. And so the Bible doesn't teach that the woman is locked inside the house. But the Bible does teach that when the woman uses her gifts for God's glory, she uses them in a way which aligns with who she is. She is a life giver. She is a wife. She is a mother. And so all of her activity in some way connects with who she is in Christ, who she has been created to be. And it certainly connects with the family and the home. She is a fruitful vine, says the Bible. 
a fruitful vine within your house. That means that she has specific gifts to bring life and joy into the home. The vine, of course, gives us wine. It is the drink of feasting and celebration and joy. And that's what the godly woman brings into the home. She makes a house, which is a collection of two-by-fours and bricks and other things. She makes the house into a home. And you can tell. You can tell when a woman's touch is in the home and when it's not. If mom goes away and there's just dad and the boys for a couple of weeks, it's not pleasant, right? The house is just not the same as when mom is there. She has a great gift to make the house into a home. She has the kindness and wisdom and gentleness and many other things that are unique to her as a godly woman. And she brings blessing. And like olive shoots, says the scripture, are your children around your table. The olive tree loves to grow. Uh, it's very exuberant in its growth. You, you chop down the olive tree and then all these shoots will pop up around it. It just delights in exuberant growth. And so that's how the Bible describes the family, that it delights in life, that it delights in new life, that it rejoices in whatever life God gives, whether it is life through birth, biological children, whether it is life through the blessing of adoptive children, whether it is life through spiritual children, uh, when the Lord has not given us children of our own, where we, we bring people into our home, we give them hospitality, and we're able to uh, lead people to the Lord Jesus Christ as our spiritual children. There are all different kinds of ways to enjoy and to rejoice in this exuberant life of the Christian home, and we all get to rejoice in it. And notice where they are. They're around your table. Notice what the psalmist didn't say. He didn't say your children will be like olive shoots around the gaming console or the TV. But around your table. The table is a place of communion and love and joy and feasting and communication and hospitality. The table is a taste of heaven because heaven is described in terms of sitting around the table with the family of God. Not every one of us in our own little corner on a screen, but us sitting together, talking together, laughing together, lifting up the cup which overflows with the wine of the joy of the kingdom. That is a picture that we see in the family meal and the family communion around the table. And so we enjoy our work and we worship God in our work and we enjoy God's good, good gifts with our family and with our loved ones and with those whom God puts in our path to love. Thus, says verse 4, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Now, where does this all come from? Where do these blessings come from? Well, we see that in verse 5. The Lord bless you from Zion. You see, the gifts we enjoy have a giver. And that giver is himself the biggest gift. We know the Lord. 
We know God the Father in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have tasted and we have seen that the Lord is good. Zion is where the temple was. Zion is where God was present in the midst of his people. Zion is where the sacrifices spoke of that blood which is better than the blood of Abel, that blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, that blood which washes away my sin and your sin, that blood which says that sinners are reconciled to God and adopted into God's family. That's where the blessing comes from. God the Father, God the Son, through the work of God the Son, and the power of God the Holy Spirit. What does the Bible say? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good thing comes from God, and that is true whether we acknowledge it or not. There are a lot of people that are going to be celebrating Thanksgiving tomorrow that simply do not acknowledge the giver. And that's a problem. When we don't see the giver, but we just see the gift, then we get confused and we turn things on their head. If we make work our idol and we say on Thanksgiving Day, my own arm has provided for me. If we are like Nebuchadnezzar, we look out over the things we have done and the things we have built and the things we've accumulated and we say, oh, look what, look what I've done. Look what my hard work and my intelligence has managed to accumulate for me. And if we don't use those gifts as acts of worship to love God and to love our neighbor, but if we use God's good gifts for our glory and our pleasure, if we live thankless and arrogant and ungrateful lives, then all the good things God has poured out from heaven upon us which we have separated and severed from him, his person, his work, his love. On the great day of judgment, those gifts will stand up and point an accusing finger at us. They will judge us. They will condemn us. And we will be rightly judged by God. Thanksgiving for gifts that we have received means something because we know the giver. We know him as he reveals himself in the world through providential care. And we know him as he speaks his love to us in the word and the sacraments. And that's why we love the church. Not because we're so impressed by what human beings can put together, but because of what God is doing in the church. Because the church is the temple of God in the world. The church is where God's presence is known in the world. The church is where God's love is proclaimed in the world. The church is where God speaks life into a world which is dying. The church is where the light of Christ is in the midst of a dark world which is lost in its darkness. And that's why we pray for the prosperity or the well-being, the good of Jerusalem. We pray for God to bless the church because it is there that God has ordained his blessing, even life forevermore. You see, if you have your Bible still to page 
uh, to Psalm 128. You see there in Psalm 133, the end there, Psalm 133. It's like the Jew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Zion, where God dwells in the midst of his people. Zion, the Old Testament name for the church. For there, where God dwells, there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. So life with God is good. And life is only good with God. And so the Christian evaluates things very differently because we evaluate things in the light of eternity. And that's why the psalm ends the way it does, because the greatest and most precious gifts are children and grandchildren. And again, whether they're physical or adopted or spiritual, they are the greatest and most precious gifts. The greatest gifts of God's goodness are those whom God has allowed us to serve and to love into God's eternal kingdom. The ones with whom we shall sit down together with all of God's children at the feast of the kingdom of heaven. When that peace of Christ, that shalom of Christ, which even now fills our hearts and our homes, will be the peace, the shalom, in which the entire universe rests and rejoices. Amen.